Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, it's the Talking Politics Guide to Summer Reading. We asked our regular contributors to tell us the book that they've most enjoyed reading recently, and the one that they're really looking forward to reading this summer. These Talking Politics Guides are brought to you, as ever, in partnership with the London Review of Books, whose summer sale with the Paris Review, two subscriptions for one low price, is open to Talking Politics listeners. Head to lrb.co.uk forward slash guides for more information, along with the usual lists of further readings from the LRB archive. So a book that I'm reading currently, because I never seem to finish books for pleasure anymore, but um, is Naomi Alderman's The Power, which I started back in the winter and then I put down, but now I've picked up again. And it's a piece of science fiction that I consider actually dystopian, which is my favorite kind. It's it's a fairly pessimistic view of human nature, actually. So the premise is that women discover the power to shoot electroshocks out of their fingertips. And this totally upends and reverses the gender balance, the power balance in the political world. And this book is being written from 5,000 years in the future where a man is starting to wonder, you know, how did gender imbalances come to be the way they be? And the, the reason that it's a pessimistic book is essentially, right, if you are perhaps a naive older class of feminists that imagines if women ran the world, everything would be just much better and everything would be fairer and more just. The message of this book is no, actually. People who establish power greater than those around them will exploit it simply because they can. I'm getting to a point in the book now where there's one political character who realizes that people are much more attuned to power dynamics and they want somebody who's a basically, uh, pardon the expression because it's wrong for the gender, but a strong man rather than somebody who's a reasonable liberal Democrat to rule, right? They want somebody who can really show the other side that they're going to you know, be tough and stick it to them. And so aside from the fact that men are getting electrocuted left and right, not much actually changes in the political world. The books that I've enjoyed reading this year are a set of largely novels, but not only novels that were written during the interwar years by people who witnessed the end of the Austrian Empire as a consequence of the First World War. So Joseph Roth's The Radetzky March and The Emperor's Tomb and Grigor Van Rezori, I'm sure that's the incorrect pronunciations, Memoirs of an Anti-Semite, which is his novel, and The Snows of Yesteryear, which I'm reading at the moment, which is his autobiography. And allied to that, although the part of Romania from which Mikhail Sebastian came wasn't actually part of the Austrian Empire. He was a Romanian Jew and he wrote a book called 4,000 Years. And they're all in different ways meditations about what happened after the end of the First World War. So what happened when this multinational Austrian Empire fell apart and all these people speaking different languages and with different senses of who that they were in national terms found themselves living in a new country, finding themselves either as a majority or a minority and the whole sense that the world had just fundamentally changed and something that they had been attached to had fallen apart. Oh, in the case of Mikhail Sebastian, his book for 2000 years is an attempt to say, I am a Romanian Jew and nothing that happens can change the fact I'm both Romanian and Jewish. And it's pretty tragic, even though he does survive the Second World War, he gets killed in a by a military truck in the latter days after VE Day. But he finds that his Romanian 
non-Jewish friends basically denounce him. And so it's a very, very painful read, but it's very illuminating about just what I think Interwar Europe was like. Well, the best book I've read recently, I read it a little while ago. It's not a new book. It was published about 10 years ago, but it's a book called 1491 by Charles Mann. And he's a, a journalist who writes about science and history. It's about the new world, in quotation marks, as it was before Columbus and the Europeans arrived. That there were a lot more people than we realized, and that those people had much more complex civilizations than we realized, and that our impression of very primitive peoples who lived in the Americas before 1492 um, was formed by the Europeans who arrived, say, from 1492 to 1592, and they saw hundreds, maybe thousands of indigenous peoples starving or in destitute conditions and living in these shattered villages. And Charles Mann has this great analogy where he says that it would be like somebody going to Ukraine or Poland in 1941 or 1942 and seeing these incredibly destitute, ravaged peoples wandering around and assuming that that was always their condition. You know, because when the Europeans arrived, they didn't realize it. Sometimes they did, but mostly they didn't. They just spread diseases very, very rapidly. And it just completely decimated the population, sometimes by 80 or 90 percent within a few decades of European contact. And then so 30 years later, when some Europeans would come over to the Americas and see these people basically hanging on by their fingernails just for survival and assuming that that's how these people had always lived is just one of the great mistakes that we still we still live with today when we picture how indigenous peoples live in the Americas, we assume it's always been thus. And what man's book shows is it hasn't always been thus. Uh, it was a revelation to me. And it helped explain a lot about not just 1491 and, and the years, thousands of years before 1491, but also the years after 1491 from 1492 onwards and just how world history has developed since then. And it's also just really fun to read. The book that I books enjoyed reading recently was Repeal the Eighth by Una Mullally, which was written and come out to the the referendum in the in Ireland about repealing the Eighth Amendment, which prohibited abortion, and it was this amazing collection of, of stories and and writing, and uh, you know fact and fiction from incredible writers and authors and comedians and activists and whatever else. These amazing women who have written all these really powerful stuff, and I think I would absolutely recommend that to anyone who reads it. And remember that Northern Ireland still doesn't allow abortion, so you know get on with it. The book I have most enjoyed recently, I really loved it, is by Curtis Sittenfeld, an American novelist, and it's called American Wife, and it is about Laura Bush, the former first lady, the wife of George W. Bush. It's a novel. It's impossible to tell how much of it is fiction and how much of it is fact. I'm sure it says at the beginning it's all fiction. It turns on an event in Laura Bush's life, I didn't know this, when she was 17, and this did happen to her, she was driving a car and she crashed into a car which was being driven by a boy in her school who was clearly a close friend of hers, although it appears not her boyfriend, and she killed him. And the whole book is about what it is to live a life in the aftermath of that tragedy and then to become the wife of the President of the United States. Like I said, it's impossible to tell how much of it is then being embellished. So the theme of the book is that this boy that Laura Bush, the Laura Bush character, kills is the love of her life and she never quite escapes from the thought that she destroyed the life that she should have had and she marries George W. Bush instead. It's completely mesmerising. It makes George W. Bush, Laura Bush, 
full three-dimensional human characters. It's sympathetic to them. It doesn't have a huge amount of politics in it. It's an amazing book about politics that isn't about politics. It's about love. It's about life. It's about tragedy. I absolutely loved it. I read it because I'd just read, I'd never read anything by her before, her latest book of short stories called You Think It, I'll Say It, which begins with a story called The Nominee, which is about Hillary Clinton. It's written from the perspective of Hillary Clinton, describing her relationship with a journalist. And a bit like the novel about Laura Bush, it's an incredible mix of fact and fiction. And by the end of it, you believe you've been in the company of Hillary Clinton. She is a genius, Curtis Sittenfeld, for writing Inside the Minds of Politicians and Their Wives or Husbands. The book I've most enjoyed reading recently has been the new translation of Homer's Odyssey by the Pennsylvania classicist Emily Wilson. And I haven't just been reading it, I've been reading it aloud, and that's been part of what's been so enjoyable about it, that at the start of the academic year that's just finished, something went badly wrong with my wife's left eye, and she had to have emergency surgery, and she spent... October and November and much of December, unable to do much with her eyes, unable to read much. And so we developed this habit where I would read aloud to her. And one of the things that I read was the new translation of The Odyssey. So it's a wonderfully well done book. It's had quite a lot of uh, publicity. The angle that a lot of the publicity is taking is that this is the first translation of the Odyssey into English by a woman. It's not the first translation of the Odyssey by a woman. And DCA, the 17th century French classicist, translated a lot of it once upon a time. Linked to the translation being by a woman is its close attention to the gendered aspects of the poem, uh, which on the one hand are about men doing manly things like slaughtering each other but on the other hand it's about men doing appalling things to women but also descriptions of women going about their day-to-day basis in these Bronze Age households. So the translation is very nicely done. Reading it aloud you have a sense of how the poems were originally experienced. They would have been read by bards or rhapsodes to audiences And the poems are divided into books, which we're very familiar with in the concept of episodes, with reasonably plausible breaks in the narrative between the books, between the episodes. I think one of the things I noticed about the poem that I hadn't really picked up on before is its extraordinarily multi-layered aspect that this is a poem that's edited by the Hellenistic librarians in, you know, think of the library in Alexandria in the period after Alexander the Great's conquests. But the poem was written several hundred years before that in the Bronze Age, and the poem in the language of that time, and the poem looks back a few hundred years more to the time of the Trojan War, which may or may not have happened. And then there's a sort of deep background of the extraordinarily mythological sense of what's going on in and around the Mediterranean. There's this very multi-layered poem. And that comes through, I think, very well in the writing, which is often like Homer's own Greek, very direct and straightforward, but has different kinds of archaicism or different curious turns of phrase. The one that caught my imagination was Odysseus sailing his ship over the journey ways of fish. And it's all been very well done, and it was a pleasure to read, and it was a pleasure to read aloud. A book that I've been reading, it's a very long book, so I'm still going through it, but I'm enjoying it greatly, is Robert Gordon's The Rise and Fall of American Growth. It's great for lots of reasons, partly because it's not written in a too economic-y way, so it's very accessible for somebody who's not invested in the 
intricacies of macroeconomic models. It's not too technical, but he makes, especially towards the end, he makes points about how social inequality is not sort of an incidental problem for growth, but it's a genuine headwind that affects the way the economy works and impacts on its productivity. And I'd not read something in as much detail and as elegantly put about that as as he has. So that's a great read. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't know if this ever come out on the podcast before. I'm kind of still a comic book nerd at heart. And so I'm hoping that another volume of the Saga series comes out, which is a graphic novel, which is basically a space opera is the best way that I could put it, featuring, well, a war between two worlds, one of which is populated by creatures that look like people but have wings, and the other is populated by creatures that look like humans but they have horns, and then there's a third planet governed by a monarchy of robots, which I find incredibly fascinating. I also find it interesting that these robots have TV screens for heads, and yet somehow they drink alcohol, um, and we've never actually been shown graphically how they're able to consume any sort of beverage or food, even though they just have TV screens for heads. And so I'm really hoping that one of these comes out because, you know, it's the summertime, it's hot, and I like pictures, and I don't want to have to exercise my brain too much. And these are actually some of the only books I can readily finish in, you know, a 72-hour period rather than letting sit on my shelf uh, after picking them up and putting them down uh, intermittently. I'm going to give you a much more predictable answer here, I'm afraid. I'm looking forward to reading Adam Tooze's book, Crashed which is about what happened in 2008, 10 years ago now, the financial um, crash and how it has shaped the world in which we now live. So this summer I'm going to read a couple of historical novels that I've been meaning to read for a couple of years now by Thomas Mallon, who's a writer in New York. The first novel is about Watergate, an historical novel of Watergate, and the second is a sequel, and it's about the Reagan years. And I'm reading those not just because I love historical fiction, but also because I'm hoping that they'll shed a lot of light on our present political condition. There's a book coming up by a guy called Woodrow Hartzog, who's a professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University, called Privacy's Blueprint, The Battle to Control the Design of New Technologies. And he argues basically that, and this is it's coming from a US perspective, but he argues that the law has been complacent in, in regulating new technologies. And he argues that actually technology is manipulative and privacy invading and, and all that kind of thing. And the law needs to, you know, it, it could and should mandate privacy and, and privacy by design, which is something that's beginning to get into EU law. Not so much in the US, but it's beginning to get real, get real traction. The book I'm looking forward to reading this summer, I've just started reading it, is Samuel Butler's The Way of All Flesh, a book I never thought I would read. It's published, I think it was published in 1903. It's a classic story about Victorian family life and the hideous hypocrisy of Victorian parenting. And I'm reading it because my son read it over the summer and he told both his parents that they should read it because it's about the hypocrisy of parenting. And we were talking with him and my father-in-law about this book. And my father-in-law said he read it when he was quite young. And before he read it, the person he most admired in the world was his father. And after he finished reading it, he thought the person he hated most in the world was his father. So I am really, really curious to find out what is in this book. 
The other thing that I'm looking forward to over this summer is listening to an audiobook of one of my favourite books, certainly one of my favourite books about politics, Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, something that I've read a lot, but I haven't read all of it that much. This is by Peter Wickham, the reader. It is unabridged, which is quite something in itself because it is a seriously long book. It's published by Naxos. There are some really famous passages that I've never heard read aloud, nasty, brutish and short, but there are also some really obscure passages. And the thing that I've learned about Hobbes's Leviathan is that the best bits are the bits that you've never read before. The new book by the American historian Samuel Moyne called Not Enough. Moyne, now he's working at Yale Law School after a recent stint at Harvard and a much longer period in the history department at Columbia University. And he's now written a trilogy about modern human rights. His first book, The Last Utopia, argued against people who argued that human rights had the, these deep roots in history, so that, it, that they have something to do with Roman law or ancient Stoicism or the modern natural rights revolution or the declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen from the French Revolution and so on. What are the deep origins of human rights? And Moyne pushed back hard against that way of thinking about the history of human rights and said it's all about 1977, that in 1977, Amnesty International wins the Nobel Prize. Jimmy Carter puts human rights front and centre of American foreign policy in his inaugural address, and the Helsinki process generates a certain kind of moral pressure on the Soviet bloc. And Moyne thinks that we completely fail to understand the sudden explosion of the importance of human rights discourse in our world if we look for these long-range predecessors and forebears and ancestors. The story of human rights is a story about the 1970s. And then people pushed back and they said, oh, yeah, 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 but what about the 1940s? What about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Actually, people are talking about human rights in the 40s, so, you know, what's that about, eh, Sam? He wanted to make the point that, yes, there is a rights talk from this period, but it is distinctively Catholic and distinctively conservative, and liberals who want to celebrate this as the moment when human rights burst onto the stage really do need to take seriously those right-wing conservative origins and the religious origins of the rights discourse of our time. He's now followed it up with a third, and he insists, final book that he will write on human rights, which looks at the interplay of arguments about human rights and arguments about socioeconomic inequality. And what he's interested in particular in this new book is the way in which the human rights explosion of the 1970s is exactly contemporaneous with the turn to what we now call neoliberalism and the turn to a new kind of tolerance in the governments of Western countries for increasing levels of social and economic inequality. And so the question he's interested in is, well, why do people start banging on about rights and in particular talking about how the rights of destitute people you know, really matter at the same time as society seem to become increasingly comfortable with increasingly large levels of inequality? And you can infer from the title of the book, Not Enough, something of what Sam Moyne thinks the problem is. So somebody who I've been meaning to read for some time, who was a Nobel Prize winner, Patrick Modiano, the French author, he wrote a, I think it's a trilogy of books set in the, during the Second World War and just in the aftermath. And they're quite short books, there's classics, and they're things I've been meaning to read for a long time. And that's, they're there sitting there waiting for me to start. So that would be my summer, my summer reading. 
We will tweet links to all those books at tppodcast underscore. Next week, we're going to have the Talking Politics Guide to American Foreign Policy. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. <laughs>